Sports is life. Fans have a deep devotion to their preferred teams from their alma maters or hometowns. In Philadelphia, where I live, fans will call out the scores of ongoing games on the streets and have choice words for the New England Patriots or any other team that the Eagles are playing. Fans spend shocking amounts of time discussing player stats and get questionable body art to display their commitment to their teams. The players are expected to be at the top of their game at all times. Regardless of the sport, players demand a lot from their bodies. For many, training is relentless, regardless of the season, and the risk of injury is ever-present. It's almost surprising that we don't see more injuries in sports, especially given players will even play through injury for the sake of the game. The safety of players is paramount, and finding ways to minimize injury risk is key. Epidemiologists can be key players in helping identify ways to minimize risk of injury. Understanding what aspects of training are more relevant to injury risk, including specific activities and intensity, can help players avoid short-term injuries. And in the long-term, there are concerns for many players of lifetime consequences as a result of their sport, notably chronic traumatic encephalopathy in football and football, or soccer we call it here in the USA. I'm your guest host, Ghassan Hamra, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. I am joined by Epidemiology Counts host, Brian James, associate professor at Rush University. Hi, Brian. Hey, Ghassan. Thanks again for taking this on. And as someone who uh, grew up in Washington, D.C. and lived in Philadelphia for 10 years, I can tell you that the sports fans don't only call out scores from the streets. They will also throw things at you if you're wearing a Washington jersey. Very, very passionate fans. (laughs) But anyways, thanks a lot. This is going to be fun. Yeah, passionate indeed. (laughs) Today, we are joined by doctors Christina Mack and Mackenzie Herzog, both epidemiologists at ICVIA, a leading provider of analytics technology solutions, and clinical research services to the life sciences industry. Doctors Herzog and Mack work in real-world solutions, agile analytics, running large surveillance programs focused on injury and illness prevention. And yes, that includes COVID. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having us. Really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. So to kick things off, I just want to ask, because, and this is, this is, context. Christine and I were at UNC Chapel Hill in the epidemiology PhD program at the same time. So I know that Christina's path to injury research is not direct at all. So I'm curious how you got interested in this area. And the same goes for McKinsey. Sure, absolutely. I um, have I have certainly had a twisty twisty career. Um, I like to say I'm kind of always chasing adventure. And I have been fascinated by epi and data and evidence um, since the very beginning, since they were, um, to, to be honest, recording injuries on sticky notes. Um, so I started out as a computer science engineer and um, got into global health. And when I met you at UNC, Gasan, I was just absolutely fascinated by the methods and the data and how do we do really strong, robust analytics that we can trust and then land those in a way that we can prevent injury or improve health or both. Um, and, and how do we do that in a pretty acute way? Because we don't want to do it in five years. I want to do it next season. Um, so, you know, in 2012, we started working with the NFL to set up that data collection system and collect injuries in a really robust way. And it has just kind of absolutely grown and, um, you know, become more and more of kind of a, a, a critical part of sport in general in the industry, as well as kind of within these different projects about, you know, we care a lot about athlete health. The game can remain really exciting while we um, prevent injuries and, and evolve the game in that direction. That's awesome. That's, that's fantastic. And Mackenzie, you're, you're trained in injury epidemiology or sports injury specifically, right? Yes, that's right. So um, my background is a little bit different. I was always interested in musculoskeletal health. My background's actually in I started going down the path of athletic training and orthopedic medicine. And after 
um, undergrad, I got a job at a research institute studying sports injuries and really fell in love with the research side and, and um, fell in love with the path of preventing these injuries before, before they occur. And so that was sort of how I got into epidemiology was um, by wanting to find a, a substantive area that I could really focus on improving health and, and reducing injuries. Um, and so I, I pursued a master's and then my PhD at UNC as well in specifically sports injury epidemiology. Oh, that's fantastic. I, uh, I, I have fond memories of one of our injury faculty at UNC, uh, Steve Marshall, who yeah. I remember telling, and I, I, I still remember this from uh, this quote from him, where someone was talking about, or he was giving a lecture at least on injury epidemiology. And he said, he's often posted the question of what do you think is a reasonable goal for injury work? And his answer was zero injuries, hmm. which I, th I always found really like a great way of thinking about it. I said, this is really a goal. I mean, it, it might be heroic, but it's, it, it, I think it casts the field in a way that I, I really respect. And I really like that. Yeah. It's, it's, com it's compelling too, because, you know, we're going to talk about sports today, but in injury epidemiology is, is really broad. And I think there's enough parents as listeners here that, you know, you mm -hmm. think about reducing injuries in kids and Absolutely. all the things that our kids do and how much we want the kids to do those things. Um, oh. And so, I mean, I think, really having an eye to how do how do we prevent injury but let these kids have all the adventures of childhood is is mission critical oh, yeah. Yeah. as a, as a so, father of a uh, yes. six-year-old with a 14-foot trampoline and a <laughs> mountain biking and parkour mm -hmm. i uh, i very much relate to that absolutely yeah i will say that you know when i told a, f a bunch of friends that i was going to be talking to some sports injury experts I was surprised. That was the Im immediate thing everyone asked me about. It's like, how do I prevent injury in my kids? You know, I thought they'd all be interested in, in their NFL teams and whatnot, but it's like, you know, that is something super important. So I I'm glad that you said that. I think um, for today's discussion, we'll, we'll talk a lot about preventing injuries and in, in professional athletes, how important that is as a, you know, as a business and just as, as for people's careers. Um, and we'll also get into preventing injury in kids and maybe, talk a little bit about, you know, long-term effects of, of injuries in kids. Um, I do want to say, I am really jealous of what you guys do. This is so cool as a sports fan. And as an epidemiologist, I've always been, especially when the whole CTE thing came along, um, you know, I'm a dementia epidemiologist and I was like, how can I pivot this to, <laughs> to studying? Uh, and I, and there, we've had a little bit of overlap with our, our study at, um, our center at Rush and the NFL and NHL. Um, so there's been a little bit of, of uh, overlap, which is cool. But um, anyway, so I wanted to ask you about this. So when we think about sports injuries, it seems sometimes kind of obvious what the major sources of injury are, especially for something like football where people are smashing into each other or soccer where you know there's headers and people bumping heads when they're going for headers. Um, but the fact remains that players need to perform. So how do you tackle the major sources of injury? And what are some of the less obvious sources of injury that you all tackle? Yeah, I can start with that. Not surprisingly, um, sports injuries, they're really complex and causality is really complex. Really, we kind of touched on this, but the goal of all of the work that we do is really to maximize the benefits of physical activity and participation in sports while we minimize the risks of those injuries or any adverse consequences of participating in physical activity. Um, and so that could be at the elite level um, and in a professional organized sports, or it could be with our youth sports or our weekend warriors, or, or even with our kids who are just playing pickup ball outside. And so that means that our injury reduction strategies really have to be very multifactorial. Um, I think at the elite level, because we're in such a, a, in that setting where we have a really organized sport, we can focus on things like rules changes, um, training for the season um, at our youth level, we think about protective equipment and um, how do we encourage safe participation in physical activity by preparing our kids before they start to participate in physical activity, what's the right progression over time. And so I think there's a, a number of different injury reduction opportunities, both from sort of the, what you, you mentioned, sort of the obvious like rules changes down to um, how do we progress correctly throughout our career or out our sporting career. 
And one thing that I, um, we focused on a little bit is with kids, if we're encouraging sports participation, when's the right time to really introduce different aspects of sport and how do we bring them in at a right pace um, versus sort of throwing them into something that they're not used to participating in. Mm. That's really interesting to me because um, I'm, uh, I'm friends with Cindy Parlo, who was a header for the U.S. women's soccer team when they won when they won gold and I've had conversations with her about this and what was notable to me is her thoughts on children participating in soccer specifically doing things like head heading activities and thinking that you know there probably is a point where it's just way too early for something like that to be safe for anybody so that's really it's uh, the fact that you brought that up immediately just struck me Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's when is it safe, but also how can we teach them the correct technique over time so that when it is introduced, they know how how to head the ball. They know how to participate in that sport. And so that's um, maybe something that doesn't seem all that obvious in terms of an injury reduction strategy, but it's so important because we need to make sure that when our kids and when our professional athletes are introduced to a new setting that they're really prepared for that and that they have the right technique and they're, they're capable of participating in that setting. And I think that, I mean, that also would would lead me to, to what I think is really important about this question, which is that injury prevention and high performance and excitement of the game are in no way a trade-off. Those things Mm. are all the same journey. So if you think about something like rest and conditioning, And, you know, let's all players need a break. And so if a player's had a break and they're going to come back into a season, making sure that they're well conditioned and ready for that season and that they have the right kinds of practice, right intensity of practice, et cetera, is not only going to reduce injury for them, but it's also going to improve their performance in the game. And so part of this is finding those levers where it's going to give you a healthier athlete, it's going to increase their performance, and it's just kind of the right thing to do. How do we generate the evidence to tell us what those right things to do are? And to me, that's like at the crux of injury epidemiology. Oh, that's so interesting. So I, you know, I want to go back to the heading the soccer ball thing, because I was, <laughs> you know, I remember when I was growing up as a kid and uh, playing youth soccer that I would see stars like constantly. I mean, looking back and I'm like, I probably had multiple concussions. I mean, and we was in that 80s soccer ball, you know, the black and white one that was like a rock, basically. That thing was smashing in my face and I would literally be dizzy and seeing stars constantly. And I'm like, I wanted to ask you all, is there a way is there a technique you can actually teach that will prevent injury in that sense? Or is there just some in, you know, inherent risk to an object flying through the air and smashing you in the face um, that you can't you know, avoid some level of injury? What are your thoughts? Yeah, there is definitely a technique. And um, I think what's, what's interesting and challenging in community sports and in youth sports is making sure that our, our coaches are trained mm-hmm. with that technique, with injury prevention in, in, um, in mind, and that they're approaching that at the right time with their youth athletes. But yes, those things are, are um, there is a, a technique and there are ways to reduce those risks. Um, what becomes challenging, and I'm sure many epidemiologists face these same challenges, are rolling out those types of injury reduction strategies and that knowledge into the community setting so that all of the coaches that are teaching our kids um, have the same toolbox. And so that's something that I think is very interesting in the injury epidemiology world is how do we best communicate to all these different stakeholders. And Brian, we've seen that evolve, you know, I think from from another child of the 80s. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've seen that evolve. My husband has an amazing story playing hockey in Minnesota, getting, you know, shoved up against the side and then playing the entire game. His mom's mm-hmm. thinking, mm, he looks a little weird. And, <laughs> Sometime. you know, 25 minutes later, he turns to his teammate and says, who are all these people? Oh, I mean, man. he's completely concussed for the, the whole game and no one noticed. Um, yeah. and, and that really was, was a lot, a lot of the story of the eighties. But I think that mm-hmm. if you look at what the setting our kids play sports now, mm-hmm. you know, they, they are not allowed to do headers. They, they get they get penalized if their head touches the ball on purpose or on accident wow. um, in youth soccer. So I didn't know that. They, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, you know, through what really, age? Um, I think it depends on the state, but oh, okay. you know, 12, 13, 15, they, they really do not 
they 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 train them gradually, but they don't even start that training or allow it until the, these kids are older. Um, and and my what I've also seen is that there is continued attention to it. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I love working with the professional sports organizations is that they do have a commitment to other levels of sport. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they're putting this investment in the health of their athletes, mm -hmm. but also making sure that, you know, these are generalizable solutions many times. I and mean, what they learn about conditioning for a professional athlete is not maybe directly applicable to youth sports, but actually it it can say a lot about how we want to con condition to go into any intense athletic mm -hmm. environment. Um, you know, talking about concussion detection, mm -hmm. I think elite sports have really figured that out. Whereas, I mean, I was watching some collegiate women's soccer games this weekend and thinking, wow, you know, she needs to go through the concussion <laughs> protocol. She's back yeah. out on the field. So I think mm. that there's a lot to be said for, you know, where, where concussion prevention and management has evolved, where professional sports is really pushing the bar on that and sure. what youth sports is now willing to tolerate. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, something that comes to mind is the heads up program, you know, we're um, teaching kids to tackle correctly with their heads up. I've always been, but you know, but then there's, there's a whole argument that kids shouldn't be participating in tackle football at all until a certain age. Um, so I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is there a way, can you, can you teach people dangerous techniques like tackling at an early age in a, in a, um, safe way, or should we hold off on those things? Like what you're telling me with heading the soccer ball, that's very interesting to me. I didn't know that. So, so some States have determined, let's just not have kids do that until their brains are, are developed enough for that safe. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on those two approaches to injury prevention? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I have three kids and I get asked a lot about whether I, or not I would let them play football. And then I look at, the kids, look at the things my kids do. And I mean, they're <laughs> out there mountain biking. I mean, they're too young to play football now, but they're mountain biking. They are skiing. They're doing a lot of things that are not particularly safe. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm really happy that they're doing those things because what they're not doing is playing video games, uh -huh. watching movies, watching TV, sitting there on social media. And so I would think it is much safer for them to be taking some injury risks. And to that end, to answer your question, you know, I, I think what the youth sports has done is taken what we've learned since our childhood of the 80s and really put that into, into play so that, you know, youth sport, youth, youth football starts later. It's not tackle at first. It kind of graduates into that. They learn those techniques. Um, I, I think they are putting these things in place in a safe way. And I think they're going to continue to do that as we get evidence to teach them how to do that. And as, you know, as parents, we're here to push the bar on that and let our kids do it and, you know, make sure that they're doing it safely. So things like concussion to me are almost these very obvious sources of injury risk in sports, but I'm curious, you know, in your, in your work, what are kind of the less obvious sources of injury that players kind of have to, to make sure to avoid or deal with commonly? And I mean, I, I imagine in your research, you've, you've come across certain things that people might think, wow, I never would have thought that that's like a major, a major thing that could happen regularly, but I bet there are plenty of things like that. Yeah, I think one of the big ones is it's a little bit harder to see, but um, we call it intrinsic characteristics or things about yourself, your conditioning, how your body functions that would maybe predispose you to injury. And that's why we talk so much about conditioning and the right pathway to preparing for introducing you to game participation or to these different levels of sports, because we know that how your muscles function and your strength and your biomechanics, how your body moves really matters a lot in terms of your injury risk. And so those, those are things that we would look towards individual injury prevention programs. So different types of training that could reduce your risk of injury. Can you give us an example of, of, um, maybe one of these programs? Yeah, so for ACL injury prevention, mm -hmm. one of the things that's been studied a lot is how injury prevention programs, like um, there, there are different kind of um, FIFA 11 program, et cetera, that are preparing you for certain sports participation by introducing jumping and different um, types of 
activities that prepare your muscles and your, your proprioception or how your body kind of reacts in space to that game participation. And those programs have really come a long way since when they were first developed. So I think back in the day, we kind of thought, you know, I'll, I'll lift weights and I have a lot of strength and I'm ready to prepare. But now it's really about not just having that muscle strength and lifting weights, but being prepared for the types of starting and stopping when you're running, cutting activities when you have to suddenly change direction because the player that you're blocking is going a certain direction. How do we prepare you for that? And so it's become a lot more dynamic where you'll see um, even when you're watching watching games, when they come out on the field, they're not just stretching their hamstring by putting their leg up. They're sort of running in place and they're they're making side cutting motions. Those types of things have been built into formal injury prevention programs now that have been shown to reduce the risk of ACL injury very cool yeah and whenever you see like lebron training he's like balanced he's like standing on a balance ball while people are throwing you know medicine balls at him from every direction like this is crazy but like you see how he's building up that balance and that ability to take Mm -hmm. an unexpected movement from one direction um i I just find that so fascinating because back in the 80s you never saw people training like that yeah Um, we've talked a lot about how um it's interesting with kids because it's actually really fun to do injury prevention programs so we'll put them on like balance balls and have them sword fight each other with foam you know foam batons because we're trying to get that ability to react to a lot of different things happening with at the same time that happen in games not it's not often in a game that you're sort of standing still and and jumping it's that you're jumping and cutting and moving around and so how can we train your body to be prepared for those activities so one thing that struck me at the at the beginning of your response mackenzie was that it sounded almost like something more like a personalized program is really important for athletes which i would think that there's some general training and to avoid injury that athletes should go through it given a sport, but it almost sounds like there needs to be just like a really deep understanding of the individual and probably some more, some more tailored ways of addressing that individual's just natural tendency toward injury. Yeah, I think it's both. So obviously the more we're able to sort of screen specific individuals and what their areas of weakness may be, where they may have imbalances from one side to the other in their legs or something along those lines, the more we're able to tailor those injury prevention programs to their specific needs. But at the same time, generalizable injury reduction strategies have also been shown to be effective to reduce injury. And that's a lot more practical for someone like our youth sports teams or high school sports to implement where maybe we don't have the technology to really dive deep on in individual players, having a um, 15 minute warm up activity that they do three times a week has been shown to be effective at reducing injuries as well. So I think both are important and um, both are effective ways to really reduce injury risk. Yeah, and we see that we see that as an athlete, as, as someone evolves as an athlete, they evolve in that direction too, if, if they're really skilled. And, and I mean, what, I, what, what often strikes me is that, you know, we need evidence and we need teams to implement good conditioning and good practices and, and safe competition at a league level and at a team level from youth to elite. Um, but at the same time, you know, athletes manage their own health. And so you see that with youth. I mean, they, they know they need to jog a few laps before they get to practice or get to the game. Um, and then, it, you know, what, what I think has been incredible in the last five years, especially that's really exploded is the knowledge and the team, the, the staff, like the medical slash sports science staff that surrounds these athletes at these higher levels, both collegiate and also elite, um, sport, it's not just one athletic trainer. It's a team of really skilled, really knowledgeable athletic trainers. Mm-hmm. It's orthopedists, it's sports scientists. These athletes have wearables and they are using them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether there's evidence behind it or not, athletes mm-hmm. and their teams are paying a lot of attention to injury prevention and to the like, you know, the personal understanding of that athlete's body and how to stay healthy. Yeah. I mean, it, it always interests me that these stars have their own personal trainers, like their personal injury prevention trainers, you know, that, that they work with individually as well as working with the team trainers. But I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, these are multi-million dollar athletes. Like you would think the teams would be throwing everything they could at keeping them on the field. Right. And, and yeah. healthy. 
So, well, and I, you know, they're coaches. I also think of them as they're, they're coaches. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're absolutely at an elite level, staying healthy is one of your number one goals. And so you want experts around you to help you do that and to help you manage that. And, you know, you even see it in the collegiate level. If you know you have a tendency to have an injury or you're, you know, at risk of something, I think that having someone to kind of specifically help you come in conditioned and avoid another, you know, recurrent knee injury that just makes good practical sense. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you a question that um, is kind of two pronged. Okay. Um, So we're talking about all these like tailoring, um, you know, injury prevention and, and, you know, as as a sports fan, you watch in sports and you always see two things that I want to ask you about. They're kind of like the polar ends of the same thing Um, that for one, these athletes heal at, inhuman rates. I mean, like they, they like break their collar. I broke my collarbone tw- twice once was playing football and I was out for the season. You know, these guys are breaking their collarbone and doing like an intense regimen. And then they're coming back to play like in season. And I'm like, how the heck is that possible? So, so my question on that is, um, is it, are these athletes actually because of their conditioning healing at a faster rate, or is it that they have access to better doctors and teams who help them heal through it? Um, and then on the other end, this is the second part of it. You you hear a lot of players are labeled as injury prone, right? And I've always wondered, are they really injury prone, or is it unfair? Like you get like two big injuries in your career, and it's like you get this label, right? And it's like, but they just got slaughtered by some huge three hundred fifty pound guy. It just happened twice, and now they're called injury prone. So anyways, those are two polar ends of, of kind of the same question. I don't know if you could tie them together for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's impossible to generalize across sports and across, you know, thousands of athletes, you know, their, their practices around return to play. But what I would say is that there is and needs to continue to be a, a real emphasis on injury reduction. And that's not only primary injury reduction, but also secondary injury reduction, because we know that we, you know, once you have a, once you have a strain, you've got a very high risk of having another strain. So prior prior injury dictates a lot about what's gonna to happen to you in the future. And I think a lot of athletes know that. And so to our prior discussion, I mean, they're really, they're really managing to that. Um, in terms of returning to sport, they they do of course have, that's their, that's their role, that's their job or, or, you know, in college, it's their passion. They want to go back to the field. And so they're going to be seeking out the medical care and also they're extremely motivated to come back mm-hmm as soon as they can come back. So that's where I think the ability to generalize would end because Mm -hmm. they're either going to return too early again Mm -hmm. across athletes. We know that that happens because they're so motivated to come back. Um, And then they, they might experience a re-injury due to returning too early um, or, or not. And they kind of took that risk and they were able to finish out the Mm -hmm. season. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I think that they're, they're really, they're really balancing that out um, as they, as they try to return, but they also, of course, are going to seek out good medical care. And, you know, I think that they, they generally just have kind of a different path to some extent than someone like us who are, you know, we're (laughs) recreational athletes. So we're, we're, we're probably a little more risk averse and we don't quite have the, the same medical teams. So you, so, okay. But so I didn't hear in your answer, anything about them being just biologically more conditioned to healing like Wolverine, you know, at a, (laughs) at a faster rate than the rest of us. is that not what you think is going on or? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll see what Mackenzie thinks about this, but I would say that if you are able to make it to a, to a, to an elite athlete status and you can hang in there for three, four, five years, mm-hmm. you have le- definitely figured out how to prevent injury in, in many cases, right? You've, you've figured out how to make sure you're conditioned and you're managing that well yourself and you've got a good team around you to help you. So there's that, you're probably lucky, but you know, I think there's also something to be said for if you're, if you're predisposed to have a really bad knee injury to kind of mm. McKenzie's early point as a kid, you kind of don't make it to the mm. collegiate level. In the All selection bias. We are seeing the people who make it there. It is selection bias. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the people who make it to become an elite athlete have somehow avoided injury um, yeah. for, for many years or they've, they've healed and come back. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a lot we still don't know about um, biological susceptibility to injury or to healing. Um, but I will say, especially for the epidemiologists who are listening, when you talk about you know a player being injury prone, I think a lot of that has to do with visibility. When you're mm-hmm. watching a professional athlete, you know they're the people that are labeled as injury prone are often the ones that are also playing the whole game and they're playing yeah. every game and they're the star players, and so mm-hmm. they're 
their time at risk for injury is different from the other players. And also they're just far more visible in the professional setting than the weekend warriors who are out on, on the ski hill every weekend. We don't see them and sort of think of them as injury prone. So I think a lot of it has to do with how we look at injuries and how we're able to capture them and analyze them. Surveillance well. bias. Surveillance so yeah, it's bias. selection bias and surveillance bias is all explaining all of this. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's... So when you um, mentioned wearables earlier, Christian, oh, yeah. immediately made me think about data sources. You know, we're all epidemiologists here. So I'm kind of curious, is, that seems like the way that things are going data-wise, but what are the kind of data that you guys use to study sports injury and do you see a lot of advances happening in that area that are giving you guys potentially better information or maybe, I don't know, too much information given just how much of a fine resolution something like a wearable can provide you? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we, we have seen incredible evolution in the healthcare space on this in the last decade plus, and that, you know, sports, sports has seen that as well. So, um, you know, in, in general, the kind of primary foundation that we use to do sports injury epidemiology is electronic health record. And I want to pause on that for a minute, because if you mm. go through the literature, even, no matter how well-respected the journal is, you will see a lot of analyses based on publicly reported injuries, which means that the injury needs to be accurately reported by the media um, and you're probably missing a lot of these less severe injuries that mm -hmm. aren't public, they're not known, they're part of someone's medical record. So I think a really important piece is that when we do injury research, we're using medical reports from team medical staff that work directly with the player, they're labeling the injury correctly, and we're curating that data so that if we do you know, see an injury in the news, we can follow up with the team and make sure we see that injury in the electronic health record. So it's, it's, it's how you want to look at injuries is based on the medical provider's assessment of whether or not there was an injury and what that injury was and when it occurred. So that's kind of the foundation that we use in the majority of our programs when we do injury epidemiology and those medical reports are really important. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, prong two of that is that any other relevant data source that can help us understand exposure and outcome and the way that the injury happened, we want to link that in and make an evidence hub that we can curate, understand, and analyze. And so that's everything from game statistics so that we understand, you know, yes or no, you played in the game, but how many minutes did you play in the game? How many plays did you play? What kinds of plays? What position were you playing when you got injured? Um, we also want to know about, you know, if, if, you were, if you were seen by a different medical professional and assessed, for example, in the NFL setting by a, you know, unaffiliated neurological consultant, what did they put in their evaluation of you? Let's kind of compare that as we, as we start to understand the diagnosis of that concussion. And then yes, absolutely wearables. So we want to understand, you know, if, if, a, if a player has a tracking device on that tells us a lot about their exposure, it tells us about their intensity, it tells us how long they, we're active, um, you know, much, much more granularly, especially when we think about practice and coming back to play. And so we want to pull that information in as well. Um, the, the data sources are to some extent kind of countless. I mean, we want to understand what equipment were people wearing, what mm -hmm. surface were they playing on, what condition was the surface in. Mm -hmm. um, if we have, you know, cameras up in an arena, that gives us movement data. So, you know, the idea is to get as much relevant, high quality data as we can, link it, understand it. And, and draw some insights from that. So it's interesting because I, I can't help but think that we're, which it seems like an obvious point really, that wearables really get back to something Mackenzie just spoke about, which was time at risk. Like if, if athletes are wearing devices during games or training, I can imagine that you're getting a lot more of that time at risk information. And then you can really start to look at things like rates of injury rather than just absolute injuries. Because I, from our perspective, I think from a, from the perspective of just the lay public or audience, all we all we ever see is the injury, right? We don't actually have any sense of of the the amount of time put in by the athlete and the kind of things that they're doing and the kind of things they're exposed to. And I can't. And one thing that comes to mind is like accelerometry. Like if you can get that data where it gives you the amount of starts and stops and the intensity of those things, it seems like that would be like huge resource mm -hmm. for really understanding it. Yeah, that's a really important point and something that's unique about sports injury epidemiology versus sort of other areas that we practice for epidemiology is that our time at risk is not constant. We know that if you're practicing, 
your time at risk is different than if you're in a game. And if you're sitting on your couch, you're, you're probably not at risk for an ACL tear. Um, and so our time at risk is really starts and stops and wearables provide a really unique opportunity to track what that what is time at risk? Is it just time or is it something more than time? Is it time and intensity? Um, and so that's a, a unique methodological aspect of sports injury epidemiology. Have you, have either of you um, used wearables and discovered something maybe kind of counterintuitive or, or surprising? Is there, you know, anything of, that these trackers have shown about injury prevention that um, those of us who don't do the work would be surprised by? Yeah, we have used wearables. Um, this example is a little bit uh, less on the wearable side, but it's still similar concept in terms of tracking the number of minutes that we play. Mm -hmm. um, my dissertation work actually was on ankle sprains in the NBA. And what we found is that it really matters how you track their time at risk. And so one, one way that's common is to say your risk for any game that you participate in. But we know that there are guys that play for five minutes of the game, and then there are guys that play for 30 minutes of the game. And so is their time at risk really the same or is it different? And so what we found with ankle sprain research and particularly whether what your risk of recurrence is, is that being able to track the actual minutes matters. It actually changes the association between how likely you are to be at risk for a second injury after you sustain an ankle sprain, because we need to make sure we take into account those guys that are on the court for 30 minutes each night or more and comparative um, to the guys that are on the court for just a few minutes or maybe our bench players. And so I think that from a method standpoint has been an interesting finding with, the, with that type of wearables or tracking data. And are you, are you finding the people that are on the court more have more injuries? Cause it could go the other way, right? It could be that people don't spend a lot of time on the court. They get on, they're not as conditioned and they're not used to it. And they sprain an ankle because they've only been on the court for five minutes. Yeah, it depends. I think mm -hmm. it depends on what injury we're talking about um, and and, and um, whether it's sort of a insidious onset injury or if it accumulates over time is more based on how much you participate or whether it's something like a concussion where really it happens when you're in a game, you, mm -hmm. you need to have an impact in order to have a concussion. Um, but we have found that being able to take into account how much time they're at risk is really an important aspect of um, understanding how likely they are to sustain an injury. Yeah. So the other really, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, given the importance of that, is it, is it the case that athletes are wearing, are, have wearables all the time now or in any given game that I'm watching, can I expect that any athlete on the field probably has some kind of device that's recording that individual's data throughout the game? Question. Yes and no. Um, there is, I, as even as fans, I'm sure you see how much data is collected because you'll see in a game where they do a replay and they show you exactly how the player's knee was moving or something mm -hmm. along those lines. So there's different ways to track that kind of activity. I think in the professional setting, given the um, the interest in the professional setting and the different types of data that are collected for lots of reasons. Um, there's a lot of information about what's happening in games in the professional setting, whether that comes from a wearable on their, you know, on their body or not. I think it depends on the setting, but mm -hmm. there's, we're in the day and age where data is really valuable. And so that there's a lot of information coming from cameras in, in an arena or on a stadium that are tracking um, what's happening in the game or, or even where the ball is or, or mm -hmm. um, what's going on in the game. And that provides really rich data that we can use for I feel like we could use that a little bit more. Like there, we got like these, like use a tracker in the ball. Did it cross the goal line or not? Like we, can, we don't need a person being like, I think it did. Yeah, we're getting there though. In, in tennis, um, they're using oh, yeah, a tracking they system to see right. whether the ball is football? on the line or not. Anyways, um, don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I would say to emphasize Mackenzie's point and answer to Kassan's question, just to bring the audience back, look mm -hmm. look down your body and see what, what you've got on. Because I know I'm wearing an aura ring. I've also got an Apple watch on. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm tracking myself now. So I think as we watch athletes at any level um, or non-athletes, such as myself over here, I mean, people are constantly tracking their movements and then using them in, in some way or another, probably you know, in, in many cases to guide their decision-making to decide if they need to work out, if they need to get more sleep, 
et cetera. So, mm -hmm. you know, underlying this entire conversation is the fact that many of us are, have wearables on because we want to understand our health or activity mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. um, Brian, to go back to your original question, um, I mean, Mackenzie's actually led some amazing analyses using um, catapult zebra tracking data to understand, you know, what's the best way to bring players back from a break? Do we go, do we go all in or do we kind of gradually ramp up their activity as they come back? And like, what, what are the implications on that on injury? There's, mm -hmm. you know, optical cameras that that track player movement up in the arenas that have been a really important source of data for us to understand injuries and give us not only that exposure information, but just more context and depth into exactly what are the athletes doing. Um, you know, we, these Connexon devices, which you've probably heard of, have been worn um, and they weren't designed for COVID, but they've been a really important part of, you know, understanding proximity to other people mm -hmm. um, over the last two years. And so it, it is a constant, it, it has, is becoming almost a constant in what we do is, you know, what kind of context or additional information can we pull from some, some kind of device that's going to record continuous movement. So can I, can I just ask a clarification when you say, and, and it is probably obvious actually, but when you say a break, I can't help but think like a broken limb, but you're, but you're referring oh, to time off, time away. Rest. From okay. Rest. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Rest period. I, I great great like, point though. Okay. Just making sure. Cause I, I, those two things seems like a very different story, yes. but I just yeah. want to a pre-planned break from the season. Well, I always from the, I always find it so interesting with baseball, you know, the science that must go into a starting pitcher, you know, how many games, in, I mean, there seems to be like this basic thing, oh, you take three games off or whatever, you know, for the rotation. But like, I would think if we do this, if we study this well enough, we might be able to figure out a way to get a starting pitcher to be able to pitch on a lot less rest. I, mean, I know it's happening already where you're seeing, but it's usually like in the play, you know, major games where they do that. Um, but is there a way that we could change the science so that less rest is required in between starting pitches? I think, yes, there's a way in the sense that we are, we do have so much more data available now and, and sports in general is going towards analyzing that data to help inform decisions. So going mm -hmm. away from just sort of anecdotal or, sure. um, I think that still plays an important role, but um, as we collect more data, we're able to really make more informative decisions. So um, maybe maybe we can find what the optimal number of days rest is mm -hmm. before you pitch or how many um, throws you have in a certain game and how do you make that work mm -hmm. over a series of a week of games or mm -hmm. two weeks of games or a month. Um, it's complicated, but we're definitely getting there and the science is definitely. And, and it may be different per person is my point. Yeah. Like it seems like we have this, yeah. this regular rotation and I'm like, well, these are all such different people. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Max Scherzer might be able to pitch on one day rest. He's such a you know, <laughs> crazy athlete that like, who knows? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I wanted to go, we keep talking about you guys collaborating with, with sports leagues like the NFL and the NBA, but, but for those of us who don't know how this goes down, like, is it, are you all actually collaborating with them or are you taking kind of, um, are you like from an outside, uh, you, you know, you're getting access to all of the, for, for example, you said health records and you're doing the analyses kind of as outside observers, or are you actually collaborating with the leagues to do this? Sure. That's a, that's a really good question. So Collaboration, yes. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what I would what I would say is a, a room full of epidemiologists is only a room full of epidemiologists. And what's really important mm -hmm. is to have a multidisciplinary team mm -hmm. um, with you know everyone who can interpret results and then land those results to impact player health. So so everything we do is kind of in that spirit that we we want to be in a, in a you know more and more broad collaboration and, and discussion of, of what can happen. I think, you know, to your initial point, we are talking about mountains of data. And so that data is really sensitive. And so um, IQVIA, which is the, the company that we work with, actually spun out of a trailer in the back of UNC Biostats Department as a clinical trials company. And so as a company, we are very used to having sensitive data and we know how to handle patient data and be very careful with it. And so one of our roles with some of our collaborators and with some of our um, league partners, such as the NBA and the NFL, is to ingest that data and keep it under that very, very highly protected standard that we would use for any kind of healthcare data mm -hmm. um, so that it's really safe and that it, you know, it stays behind that firewall. 
and that any of these linkages are just done in a completely controlled, completely private, secure mm -hmm. environment. So to some extent, you know, we're kind of playing that data science epidemiology role as part of that collaboration and running these analyses along with a lot, kind of discussing them alongside other experts and, and talking about, okay, now that we know this, how do we actually interpret that in this, in this specific setting? Mm -hmm. Who do we communicate those results to? Let's go talk to those individuals and really make the change to, to bring injuries down. Gotcha. And is this something that the leagues like seek out? I mean, do they ask for this or, or is it, it's just like, you know, as a naive person, I'm like, is this something, I would think this is something they would be clamoring for, you know, is that a correct assumption? Sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, with, with the, with the NFL, we've had a, a long-term partnership mm -hmm. as kind of their injury epidemiology team and they have vast and, and actually very public health and safety efforts mm -hmm. so I mean if you're interested in that from a from an American football perspective I'd mm -hmm. you know encourage you to go I mean they have um, really interesting kind of NFL presents mm -hmm. health and safety updates and they have some incredible work that they're doing I would say the same for NBA so for those two organizations since you brought those up I mean those are our, our clients and we've kind of had a long-term partnership mm -hmm. with them on on their um, high priority of player health and safety. Cool. Um, for other organizations we work with, um, I think it kind of runs the gamut. Sometimes it's kind of, I mean, Mackenzie and I both serve in a, you know, board advisory role, um, or we, you know, will help people with their data quality and their data curation. And in academic settings, they often have an epidemiology group that can look at it. So what we bring is the, you know, here's how you ingest it. Here's how you quality review it. Um, you know, you should kind of audit this way. You can follow up this way. These are like variable transformations. I mean, really getting under that data iceberg of how do we make this usable for analytics? Um, so, you know, it really runs the, runs the gamut. So I'm curious. Um, so w when we say something like, and you engage with the NBA or the NFL, that's kind of broad. So who are your kind of, without naming names, of course, like at what level are you engaging with the teams and the players? That's a good question. The kind of like trainers are points of contact for you, or is it more like coaches or something along those lines, the folks you engage with more? I mean, I, I would just say, you know, nothing gets done in a room full of epidemiologists anymore. Um, so the, the, the SER audience might not, might not love that, but I think in anything we do, we want to be talking to the treating clinicians, but we also want to be, you know, if we're looking at youth sports, we want to talk to the parents, we want to talk to the coaches. And so we, we take that really multidisciplinary um, tack in, in everything that we do. So we do, um, you know, the athletic trainers and the athletic training staff are often also kind of the medical reporters. They're the ones putting that information, those diagnoses into the electronic health record in collaboration with the team doctors. So we work really closely with them on the data side, as well as, you know, kind of that, how to land this side, how to, how to keep the player safe. But it, it is really a multidisciplinary effort where the results and the actions from this do need to trickle across the league and go to coaches and, and go to the decision makers. And so, you know, that's, that's always the goal is to really pull in as broad of a team as possible. Yeah. And I'll just add, we started by talking about all of the different ways that we can reduce injuries across the league. And what that means is really taking different tactics and going different routes to reduce those injuries. So working with the people who are working with the players and working with the players themselves so that we can work on conditioning, but the leagues also play a really unique role. One of the biggest, um, I want a key area in sports injury epidemiology that was a huge win for injury reduction was youth hockey um, at the organizational level implementing checking rules. And that really reduced the risk of concussion there. So the, the league, at the league level, there are different strategies for how to reduce injuries by changing the structure of a season, by changing the rules that, of the game, by um, implementing different um, kind of league-wide standards um, versus the the trainers at the clubs or the medical staff, they really play a role in secondary prevention and in conditioning their athletes. So it takes a, a village really to reduce injuries broadly. Yeah. So and we, we've seen a culture change too, where yeah. everyone is really interested in athlete health. So I think that it's not hard to get people to pay attention. I mean, it's, it's always a, it's always something we need to be, you know, pushing more, but I think it's pretty ubiquitously understood how important it is to keep athletes healthy. So there's interest so, from all sides. So in that regard and building on Mackenzie's um, 
calling out of the the checking rules do you feel like there have been certain kind of harm reduction interventions more recently or since you've been involved in this area that you've thought to yourself these have really changed things and improved yes. player I was going to ask for examples too Let, let's hit the readers with some really cool examples of harm reduction that that we may not be aware of Sure. You know, I think something that is relatively published and also, you know, a sustained decrease that, um, you know, I'll, I'll speak on behalf of the NFL that I think a, a lot of, you know, a lot of people are really proud of is the um, reduction in, in game concussions um, mm -hmm. in American football. And if you look at the evolution of that, it really started with trying to make sure that every single concussion was reported and diagnosed and um, understood. And so, you know, you, you look, if you look at the NFL environment, they've got athletic trainer spotters up in the sky, you know, watching for every hit and they have unaffiliated neurologic consultants on mm -hmm. the sidelines, like co-examining anyone who's had any kind of a head or a neck impact. And so they've put a lot of, a lot of energy into diagnosing and reporting every single concussion. And then from there, figuring out what are those levers where we can bring these injuries down. And if I had to kind of name three levers that they put into place prior to the 2018 season, I would say they did a lot of engineering helmet research and they prohibited players from wearing the helmets that in the lab, it, we, we saw that those helmets did not protect players as well as other helmets. So they, mm -hmm. you know, put players in safer helmets, they updated the kickoff rules, they mm -hmm. prohibited lowering of the head. Um, so they made some really key rule changes and they saw, a you know, 25% reduction in concussions. And we saw that sustained over three years. And I think that is an example and a, and a real win for injury prevention. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Really appreciate, uh, really appreciate this conversation, y'all. Um, and I will mercifully not ask you about your preferred NFL or NBA teams. I think that would put you in a bad position working and, in working in that area. And I won't ask you if Saquon Barkley is going to play this weekend and should I put him in my flex position for fantasy? We could have used that information, but you know, maybe offline, maybe offline. That's a, that's a, that is probably one of the most valuable data sources actually. Exactly. Like fantasy games probably have, they probably have the most advanced AI <laughs> machine learning algorithms. Out I'm real up on, on uh, NFL injuries, believe me for my fantasy team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we just want to say thank you again, both Mackenzie and Christina for joining us on the Absolutely. podcast today. Thank, thank you. you. It's been great to speak with you today. And before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in June 2022 in Chicago, assuming no more pandemic setbacks. Membership also gets you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. Also, just a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research or anyone else for that matter. And we really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon.